You know, I look out in this room and I see all these cool updates and improvements, and all I see is a pit of snakes. Uh, good morning, you brood of vipers. Who warned you that God's wrath was falling on you unless you change? Okay, imagine starting out a message that way for real. There's, a, there's enough loose cannon here that you're like, is he about to really? Is that really what we're? Oh, a little scary. Okay, and imagine in your hearts right now, imagine being so desperate for the truth that you would not only tolerate that kind of a message, but at the end of it would be hungry for more. That you would be asking, how do I respond to this? How do I listen to this? What do I need to change? <clears throat> that's, that's the situation we find ourselves in in Luke chapter 3. <clears throat> we'll get there. Starting in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being the governor of Judea, and Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So as a prophet, God's word has now fallen on this man, John, and, the, and there's no mystery here. There's no need to sleuth on this one. Luke gives us an absolutely clear date in history. There is no question as to what he's talking about. We know when Tiberius reigned from 14 to 37 AD. He was not a very good leader, by the way, which was common. Um, Pontius Pilate was the fifth governor of Judea from 26 to 37 AD. Herod Antipas, we don't know exactly when he started, somewhere between 4 and 1, uh, 4 BC and 1 AD until about 39 AD. Um, Caiaphas and Annas, um, Annas was appointed by Rome in AD 7 through 14, then in AD 25, uh, Annas was, then in AD 25, Caiaphas, his son-in-law, was appointed until about AD 36. And by the way, Luke probably is making a political commentary by listing two different high priests, and that is not the way it's supposed to happen. You should not have more than one high priest. Uh, but we know that at the time of Jesus, the priesthood was more like the mafia than it was like the priesthood. And in fact, Annas probably served kind of as the godfather. He was the real power behind the power um, in Jerusalem there. Um, we know from the gospel writers that Jesus was properly brought before Caiaphas for a trial at some point, but only after he had already illegally been taken before Annas for a fake trial. Again, probably the godfather of the situation. Regardless, Luke has given us a very precise year. This is A.D. 29. No question. Um, A.D. 29. Of course, we plus or minus a few months, but you're at A.D. 29. This timeline is priceless to us, especially since we know that the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed in, about, in A.D. 70. So this creates this beautiful about 40-year window. Not surprising that it's 40 years, right? This beautiful 40-year window in which the Christian faith is born and begins to thrive and changes, begins to change the world. So here we are in AD 29. John is apparently about 30 or so. We really don't know exactly. God's word falls on him. He gains some message from the Lord that he then is going to bring to God's people. He is, in fact, a prophet, the prophet. Um, at this time. So what does this entail? Well, we see in verse 3, he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Now, the most of the region, the river of Jordan um, that runs all the way through, one of the, the kind of the edge of Israel 
is not an easy place to get to for the most part. And in fact, we know where he was pretty much precisely. It's so out of the way that we don't go there when we go visit Israel because uh, very often we've only been there one time in all the trips that I've been because even on a bus, it's inconvenient to get there. And yet people were wandering through the wilderness on horse or donkey or on foot probably mostly to go meet this man in the wilderness by the Jordan River. A baptism, it says, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is an immersion in water, signifying a complete change in thought and attitude for the removal of guilt that comes from missing the mark that God has ordained. Now, this is a devoted Sunday, which means we take some time and we understand a little bit more about communion. We take a little bit of extra time and talk about family dedication and what that means. And we've seen, by the way, we've already seen Jesus engaged in as an eight-day-old and a 40-day-old, two different dedication type of situations already. And by the way, we also use this, the, dedicate, the devoted Sundays, um, to really bring to our attention once more as a discipline, the reminder that we are so grateful to God that we have little kids in our church. Um, so, so that when we hear little kid noises or little fussinesses or whatever going on with little kids that they do, that that temptation in us to cut our eyes over to some parents as if they need to somehow keep their children from being children is a, is a sign of a problem in our heart, not theirs. And so that we are grateful that there are little kids in our church who make noises and fuss and who, um, it was perfect first service time. Like I said that and a kid just, just burst out right, right at that moment. It was flawless. Um, it is a great reminder. We, we really prefer that there are churches that would give whole wings of buildings to have children in their church again. And so we are, we are super, super blessed by God. And then, of course, also baptism. <laughs> well, since today we were going to be hitting John the Baptist anyway, let's take a minute and talk a little more about baptism. Baptism is essentially the Greek word for immersion. It can mean conversion. It can mean repentance. It can mean cleansing. Um, and this has been true in the Hebrew Scriptures for a long, long time, this act of immersion that can signify different things. So the immersion itself isn't what accomplishes it. It's what it signifies more about that. The Hebrew word typically used is rakats, or to bathe. It's used all through, for example, Leviticus. Often the language is to bathe the body, um, and it's for all kinds of things. The rabbinical teaching about this, by the way, by the time of Jesus around that time period was, just as the sun sets all at once, so shall he bathe himself in the water all at once. So we can see that immersion is clearly what's being described here. Aside from the fact that literally that's what the word means. The application among Judaism was this ritual bathing meant the entire body, unless the passage specifically said otherwise, like if it just said hands or just said a body part or something like that. And though the debate was always going on from early on, and again, still today, the debate continues, at the time of Jesus in the Hebrew world, it was pretty much settled that this meant a complete immersion. Um, like, for example, let's look in Mark chapter 7. Here you have Mark explaining to us, the, the, potentially the Gentile audience, um, in, a, in a parenthetical note, what Jesus is talking about in this passage. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding the tradition of the elders. Here you have one word for wash. Holding to the tradition of their elders, and when they, do, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash here we have the word immerse. 
There are many other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Yes, dining couches. So here's, here's what the passage says in the Greek, if you can pull that up. Look at that word washing in the Greek. Does that look familiar? It is the word that we get the word baptism, baptismos. That's, the, that's the, literally the word. It means to immerse. So you imagine taking a pot, and when you want to wash that pot, you don't pull it over to the side and sprinkle some water on it and then dry it off and call that clean. You dunk it in the water. You wash it. You soap it. You do all that kind of stuff. And that's what was being done. In fact, the bath, these things were, the, the, the ritual baths that those of us who've been to Israel, there are hundreds of them, if not thousands of them around the city of Jerusalem, because everyone had to fully immerse themselves in one of these baths in order to go up onto the Temple Mount. Everyone did. And so this was a, this was a very, they would go down, strip down, and then totally immerse themselves, come back out and put on new garments. That's the picture. The bath they called the mikvah. Um, so, for example, and these things were meant to create a powerful imagery. The early Christians grabbed onto this as a powerful imagery, a mish, an imagery of dying, D-Y-I-N-G, death and resurrection, or dying, D-Y-E-I-N-G, whatever it is, that changes the color, right? Totally changing the color of something for, for washing, for repentance, etc. In fact, many people don't know, the early church had this like handbook called the Didache, the Didache is this funny little handbook for us, and it, is, it reads exactly like a church handbook. And some people think actually the disciples were involved, some of the disciples may have been involved in helping write this. So they have instructions, like very practical instructions. When the church is going to do something, how should they do it? Well, listen to what, listen to what the Didache says about baptism. This will reveal how they saw it. Concerning baptism, baptize this way. Having first said all these things, Baptize into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, from Matthew 28, 19, in living water. Now, that's interesting. Living water to them would have meant moving water. So we've, we've kind of blown that one. Um, the water's not moving. I mean, it'll be moving in a minute, but it's not moving right now. It's not rushing. Listen, but this is what's key. This is how you know that the symbology is what matters to them, okay, is because the next word is the word but. But... If you don't have living water, moving water, baptize in other water. If you can't find cold water, then in warm water. Now, we don't do that well either because we warm the water for people, right? Before they, apparently cold water is preferred. Although, this is the Middle East. When you're thinking what kind of water you want to get in in the Middle East, tepid or warm water is probably not your first choice. That probably is going to feel a little bit like getting in a tank in a cow pasture in summer in East Texas. Ooh, right? And so, so running water is best. Cold water is good. But here, maybe it actually the spirit of the law may be warm water, like that it's refreshing and positive experience. Listen to this. But if you don't have either, pour out water thrice upon the head into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So again, it is the symbol that is significant. It's the symbol of this re spiritual reality that's happening. If you have living water, that's best. If it's cold, that's best. If it has to be warm, fine. If it has to be still, that's fine too. If you don't even have enough water for still water, well, then just dump water on people. That's it. That's okay. But here's, and here's the one that's like, well, this may require a change in the church handbook here. Um, but before baptism, let the baptizer fast. Uh-oh. 
and the baptized and whatever others can fast. But you shall order the baptized one to fast one or two days before. Uh-huh. All right. So this is how I know the early church was interested in the actual heart spirit change that the baptism signifies. The main role of baptism was one of cleansing, a sign of cleansing, <clears throat> but that's not all that John is doing here. When we look at the initial one that John is talking about, another main one was a sign of conversion. If a Gentile became a Jew, they would experience full baptism as part of the process of becoming Jewish in their faith. Um, what's I what I was? I am not that anymore. Mainly, I was a Gentile, now I'm a Jew. A total change. It could also mean a repentance, a total change of direction and attitude. Um, John seems to be integrating all of these in a way that's kind of confusing to his Jewish audience, at least at first, that a washing, a conversion, and a change of direction is kind of all there mixed together. It is, quote, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Again, to expand that, an immersion in water signifying a complete change in thought and attitude for the removal of guilt that comes from missing the God-ordained mark. Immediately, of course, the Jews in the audience would have asked, why do I need to repent? I don't need a change in identity. I am an offspring of Abraham. I am covered by my genetic inheritance, by my descendants from Abraham. We'll look at that in just a second. John's going to explain what, I mean, Luke's going to explain what John is doing by referencing a prophetic passage from Isaiah. Look in verse 4. As it is written in the book in the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Remember the case that Luke is emphasizing certain things to make sure a Gentile audience can engage. Now again, you can very quickly overplay this idea of the gospel writers targeting a certain audience, but certainly Luke doesn't want to chase off his Gentile audience. All of the gospel, all four gospel writers make a point of referencing this passage in connection to John. All four do. But only Luke includes verse 5 of that prophecy, which goes like this. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Again, we see once again that God's plan for salvation wasn't just a Messiah for the Jews. It was for all flesh to see this salvation. Now we get to John's warm-up sermon, the sermon warm-up. John does not tell a little joke or a little poem or some poignant little story from his own life. He goes like this. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, oh, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to rise up from these stones, sons for Abraham, children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Listen, John knows his audience well. He knows who they are and he knows how they think and he knows they probably don't think they need to repent. They see, that they're kind of, they see themselves as kind of helping out God by being his people. Careful, 
that we as congregational Christians, cultural Christians, Tylerites and Texans don't fall into that category. That we don't think, oh, I'm doing God a favor by being here at church on Sunday morning. Oh, I'm doing God a favor by wearing one of his t-shirts or one of his crosses. Oh, I'm doing God a favor by having a little ichthus on my business card. Be careful that we don't think that we don't fall into that same thing. It's easy for us to do that. God has saved us, and in the saving the work of, through the saving work of His Son, we are saved forever. And we also all have to be sanctified, changed, grow, change our path. Sometimes fully repent of things in our lives. There is sin in our life that God takes very seriously, and it's natural sometimes for us not to, to not take it serious enough. We're not careful enough in being aware of it, of being humble enough and aware of it. They, are just, they think they are justified by their inheritance through Abraham, so he confronts that thinking before they can even protest him. God doesn't need us. If God wanted worship and none of us were willing, then the rocks would sing. There's nothing, and there's a lot more rock than there is us in the universe. He'd get plenty of it. He promises to love us, but not to always protect us from the consequences of our sin. And if we don't know his son, part of those consequences of our sin include eternal judgment. We have to turn to him and accept his salvation. And then he has this language, behold, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Now, over the last few months, Paul and I have taken down several very large pine trees in my backyard. It's been a cool adventure. I would show video, but we don't have time this morning. Um, I'll be happy to show you later if you're, if you're interested. So massive trees and what they left behind, which we managed to pull them all, all successfully without des- destroying a single building uh, at my house, which I was super, I was impressed. I thought our odds were about 50-50, to be honest, when we got started. So we left, were about seven huge stumps uh, behind. And so we said, okay, I said this last Saturday, I sent out to some guys, hey, can anybody show up and help me get rid of these stumps? So a handful of guys showed up with our chainsaws, and we start cutting away at these big old stumps, um, trying to get them out of the backyard. And, and uh, at first, the stumps defeated our chainsaws. Um, base of a tree, that's some hard wood down there, even on a pine. And so we're getting, and we doled all of our chainsaws and all of our, I literally had to go drive to Ace and buy some more chainsaw blades because they had doled up all of our chainsaw blades. And then we, we finally get it. Well, we were so desperate at one point that I go get the axes and we're about to start chopping. And we did. We chopped some just to see maybe this can help us get somewhere, right? Well, this picture, if you've ever worked on the outdoors, you've ever worked with an axe. Here's the picture that Jesus is creating. The axe is laid at the root of the tree. The next thing that's about to happen is a backswing and a foreswing. That's it. And he's warning them, you better repent. There are seconds left. The ax is there. It's laid at the root of the tree. This is coming. You don't want to be in the way of that when it hits. Respond now. He's going to give even a scarier picture here in a second. This is the idea that we would say, look at our lives and go, I don't, I don't want God carving that kind of stuff off that way. I want to repent of it quickly. I want to get this out of my life. Here's what's wild. The crowds can sense the truth in this message. They are so open to it, the darkness in their lives has reached their chins. 
And now they're desperate. They're desperate for anything to get them out of this. John is going to show them being, being Abraham's offspring has not protected them from serious failure. They are petty, jealous, agenda-driven, greedy, unkind, abusive, and lacking in compassion. And often they are those things in the name of religion. And he's done with it. So how do the crowds respond? They yell and scream at him and tell him to tone it down a little bit. No, no. What then shall we do? They hear the train coming, and he answers them, If you have two tunics to share with him who has none, and whoever has food, do it likewise. Now, these aren't some behavioral thing that's going to get them saved. These are signs of repentance. These would be proof that change was actually happening in their lives. How many of us, we face that as a marriage counselor? I deal with this in marriage counseling all the time that one spouse or the other, they love to make promises. Oh, I'm going to make these changes. Oh, I'm going to do this differently. Oh, I'm going to, and then they don't. And they love to make promises, but they never follow through. And that's what John is saying here. Don't just make the promises. Follow through. When you get out of the desert, don't be like, wow, that was a great religious experience. That was amazing. That John guy, man, that guy can really preach. That was amazing. And then go right back to your lives. No, there should be signs, indicators. Make the personal choice to share in your abundance. Wealth is not evil, but it is a serious responsibility. Two groups in his audience immediately, immediately realize Okay, we're in big trouble here. Verse 12, tax collectors came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. And soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Don't, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. It's fascinating that these are two examples because these are two things that the culture allowed, expected, and assumed. Tax collectors are always going to be extorting more than they should. Soldiers are always going to be threatening and bullying people. Rome not only allows it, but encourages it. Culturally, this is totally okay behavior. And John is going, nope, not for the repentant. You be, you be okay with what God has given you. And it may be, so where this first group calls him teacher, which certainly implies they are Jews, the tax collectors. The second group doesn't, the soldiers. As Paul was pointing out, maybe that means these are Roman soldiers. That'd be amazing if that's the case. It may be. Rome allows this. Well, the culture allows it. It must be okay. No, says John. Absolutely not. That's not who we answer to fundamentally. Verse 15. And as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. You can imagine them all gathering around like, do you think think that's the Christ? Do you think he's the Messiah? He's the anointed one? This would be amazing. John, of course, being inspired by the Holy Spirit to the point of being almost psychic in his ability to know what the people are thinking, says to them, You wish I was the Messiah. Here's the way he says it. Oh, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So he's not the chosen one. He's the forerunner to him. All I'm going to cleanse you with is water. The guy who comes after me is going to cleanse you with fire. My recommendation is you get good and clean with the water before the guy with the fire shows up. You want him to go up and go, uh, no, you're all right. You got washed already. You repent on your own before he has to repent you, right? He can offer the spirit of almighty God. John pleads this category distinction. Listen, listen to me. Repent now before the Messiah shows up, before you're responsible for what he teaches you. Get ready for him now. Be prepared for him. 
Listen to what he says. The, you thought the, winnow, the, the analogy of the axe was bad? Verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. In other words, there's a, this big pile of junk out here on the floor. He's going to take this winnowing fork, this pitchfork, and he's going to throw it all up in the air, and the stuff that blows away that's worthless is going to all get take, gathered up and burned. Only the seed that falls back down is going to be saved. Make sure you're in that group who hears what he says and falls at his feet. Verse 18, so with many other exhortations, that word, that word has many meanings, doesn't it? Um, with many more exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added, to this, added this to all of them, that he locked up John in prison. Quickly, historical note here. So one Herod had married his brother's wife, another Herod, um, whose the wife's name, helpfully, is Herodias. Super helpful. And so the Roman Jewish historian Josephus puts it this way. Herodias took upon her to confound the laws of our country and divorced herself from her husband while he was alive and was married to Herod Antipas. So she divorces one brother and marries the other brother instead. And John's not cool with this. And he calls out this sin before all the people. Herod's not pleased, so he has him arrested. More on that later. Verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well, with whom I am well pleased. We get more detail from other gospel writers. Luke gives us just the basic here. Almost throws it in. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Jesus got baptized, too. Did I forget to mention? Jesus got baptized. It was a cool thing. Uh, the Holy Spirit descended on him, and a voice came from heaven. No one's left out, including at this point, one day, as John, at some point, John is confronting the crowds and their sin, and Jesus himself walks out into the water to be baptized. This is, this is amazing picture, this picture here. And by the way, everyone was baptized. We're going to be baptizing somebody here in a minute. If anyone else in the audience goes like, I, I, I would like to be baptized today, you are welcome to come on up. The water will be fine. And it's probably not even cold. So Jesus walks up. John must have known him in their childhood, obviously, but maybe it's been a while. Maybe it's been decades since they've seen each other. Regardless, Jesus comes out, asks John to baptize him. John reluctantly does it. Now, just like with the consecrations we talked about earlier, does Jesus need to be baptized? Of course not. He didn't need to be circumcised. He didn't need to be consecrated. He didn't need to be purchased from God or baptized, but he was. Part of me wonders if it's as simple as I mean, why wouldn't he? It's not like these are some horrible tortures to be avoided, right? These are amazing pictures. These divine pictures are incredible. They're glorious celebrations to celebrate and embrace fully, to drink to the dregs. How cool for God to give us these physical symbols, these physical experiences to teach us the spiritual truth behind that. How cool it is for God to do that. Um, as humans, we get to experience that. Um, Tula and Christopher, y'all can go ahead and come on up, by the way. Um, uh, Tula's about to be baptized by her father, Christopher, in one second. This is, a, uh, this is a great time for us to get to experience and see this picture created for us. Um, 
And, uh, and so we're excited to have this testimony given to us. So I'll hand it over to you guys. So you've got a verse, a passage to read for us, and then we will get right to it. What, what an amazing blessing. And, and here's what's fascinating. I love when we get to see parents baptizing their kids. Um, it should be the um, ambition of everyone who calls them, certainly of everyone who calls them Baptist, to hope to baptize somebody, to disciple somebody, and to raise them up in such a way that they have that role. And what a perfect thing for a father to do for his child. What a great picture. Um, we see in Jesus' baptism that God the Father is involved in Jesus' baptism, even though it's his cousin John who does the dunking. What a beautiful thing that God the Father himself speaks from heaven and says, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. I could get a room full of men. I love teaching to men. And when I get a room full of men, it's easy to get men to laugh. Men love to laugh when it's just a whole bunch of men together. But if you want to see tears well up in men's eyes, teach this passage. This idea of how many men have waited their entire lives and maybe never, ever gotten to experience that moment when someone has said to them, you are my son, and I'm well pleased. I'm so proud to be your dad. Isn't it fascinating that God the Father models this for us before Jesus has done anything? There's been no miracles. There's been none of that. Jesus has yet to accomplish anything, and yet God the Father speaks over him how proud he is of him before he starts his official ministry. Baptism is the physical expression of a spiritual truth, but so is fatherhood. So is motherhood. It's a physical expression of a spiritual truth. I'm, I am a, uh, I, as a husband, I am a symbol like that. As a father, I'm a symbol. As a shepherd, imperfect, flawed, broken. I'm not a great symbol. Hopefully I do okay. Some are great, some are, some are better, some are worse. But we as the church are a symbol of the spiritual reality that is behind all of this. The reality is better than this. The, the reality is that, that I'm just a symbol of what, a, what the Father is, a symbol of what the shepherd is, of what the groom is. We're, we're all these living symbols. It's like we were created in the image of the true thing. Life here on earth, it's like those little pink spoons that you get at the ice cream shop. And you just get a little, a little taste of it. And there's, there's some goodness in that, right? Someday, the whole Sunday. And that's what we're praying for. If you will, stand. This idea, the assumption is as we have an invitation time every week. This isn't just something we do out of habit. It's not just an easy way to, to move people in the crowd or whatever. The assumption is that God's word speaks to us, that the Holy Spirit is investing in us as we sit and hear his word and we sing together and worship together and give together and greet together and pray together. Certainly as we take the Lord's Supper together and experience baptism together and dedicate our families together, that God's spirit is working in us if that's the case, then this is a time when we want to, to, to have that and to, to be challenged by this truth that we are his symbols in this world. <clears throat> we are a living picture of the spiritual truth of who God is. What a great opportunity. What a fascinating burden and responsibility. I want to read to you from Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews several times uh, really unpacks this idea. So I want to read this to you. As, you. as we sing in a moment, as you figure out how you want to respond, if you want to come pray, 
If you've been through our welcome home process and you're ready to come in and, and join with our deeply flawed family here and you want to come be a part of that, um, we would love to have you be a part of that as well. Um, whatever you need to do to respond in a moment while we sing, I hope you'll do. From Hebrews chapter 8. Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up. Not man. <laughs> for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were just on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. When Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Pray that you would join us in the reality of who God is.